All right, John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8. And we're going to begin there in verse number 1, of course. This morning will be much more of an introduction, more than anything. Uh, but I want to begin with a thought that uh, just a kind of for a subject matter to, to think and to consider as I was uh, looking at this text. The one thing that stood out to me is how can mercy and justice in a situation like this uh, be seen and evidenced? And that got me to thinking about how can we harmonize these two? Harmony is to be in tune with one another. How can mercy be extended on one hand and God's justice uh, also not be realized? And the story of the, the woman taken in adultery, I think, is one of the perfect pictures of how Jesus Christ intends mercy and justice to be in harmony. In other words, we cannot have one without the other. You can't have God's mercy without justice, and you can't have God's justice without mercy. But I would say it's easy to discount one or the other. I want to go to verse number 11. We are not going to cover this verse today, but this will kind of set the foundation for this story. Of course, this is probably the familiar verse of it all. Uh, when we hear this verse read or we hear this verse uh, recited, we tend to know what story it's part of. And it's there in verse 11. Uh, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, you might mark that expression. We're going to reference that. And in these first 11 verses, as Jesus deals with this woman, we want to consider that subject, the harmony of mercy and justice. The harmony of mercy and justice. Uh, John Stott, who is a, a recognized by some, made this statement. He said, The cross displays both the love of God and the justice of God. So as we think about this harmony between mercy and justice, we've got to think to what the cross was about. The cross was not just about the love of God, it was also about the justice of God. In the cross, we see the wrath of God. We see all of these principles, and yet when we look at the cross, we don't say it's just about the love of God or it's just about the wrath of God or the justice of God. So when we look at this story, and we see the story and the the characteristics and the inner workings between the Pharisees and this woman. We can't look at it without understanding that we've got to consider both the mercy and the justice or the grace of God. In chapter number eight, we're going to deal with Christ showing mercy to this woman. And this woman is no doubt, she is caught in a, a sin, a breaking of the law, there's not a question as to what she was found doing. So we know that the sin was present. We know that what, she, what happened was the case. In other words, this was not a false accusation. Uh, this indeed happened. But also, we're going to see that as we go through this chapter and beyond this story, we'll see that this, cha this chapter also contains Jesus answering the Pharisees who will again attempt to attack Christ's authority. Remember, we dealt with a lot of that last week about the authoritative word of God. And then this chapter ends uh, with Jesus revealing his authority with making one of the many I am statements. 
But for this morning and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider just verses 1 through 11 and this story about this woman who's been taken in adultery and how the harmony of mercy and justice apply. Now quickly, let me give you an outline of these 11 verses, just these 11 verses alone. Verse 1, we see that Jesus ascends to the Mount of Olives. This is just a very general outline for you. Uh, Verse number 2, we see that Jesus is teaching again in the temple. Number th- verses 3 through 6, we see that Pharisees confront Jesus with this woman taken in adultery. Verses 6 through 8, we see Christ questions the Pharisees by shining the word of God or the light of the word upon them. Verse 9, the Pharisees are convicted by the words of Christ. Verse 10, the woman who was taken in adultery and brought in by the Pharisees is left alone with Christ. That is a remarkable interaction. And then finally, verse number 11, the woman is not condemned. However, she is dismissed with a warning. So all these things are very important to keep in mind. Now, we do need to keep in mind the the very high arching context. This passage, we cannot separate it from the previous seven chapters. One of the dangers of a new chapter is separating what was previously learned as if it's something brand new. Uh, it's it's kind of like in a day or so, the calendar is going to change, but that new year cannot be thought of without remembering what was right before it. For many people, they think, nope, it's a brand new year. It's a brand new, everything that happened prior to this, not happening again, that's old news. What happens in this year is, no matter whether you like it or not, is connected with what just happened. So we cannot look at chapter number 8 and dismiss it from the reality of what was happening here. Remember, Jesus has been dealing primarily with the blindness of Israel, how that Israel and its religious leaders were blind to the reality of who Jesus really is. So in this, in this series, in this book of John, again and again, we have seen the Holy Spirit calls our attention to the state that Israel was in when Christ was partaking in his earthly ministry. So we're not looking at something that is so far removed that we don't have the comprehension of this. All the way back in chapter number one, we saw that the Jews were were so blind to this that they were ignorant of the identity, remember, of the forerunner or John the Baptist. In other words, they didn't know who he was. They were blind to the presence of God in their midst, that even when Jesus showed up, that nation was blinded to him. In chapter number two, we looked at the joyous state, the joyless state rather, of Israel. How they desecrated or they destroyed, they attempted to destroy the Father's house. In chapter three, we beheld or we saw a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, That was Nicodemus. He was dead in his trespasses and sin. He came to Jesus by night. Jesus tells him, you must be born again. He was clueless as to what being born again meant. He was thinking in human terms. He was thinking in physical realm. How can a man, when he is born, be born again? Chapter 4, we saw that the Jews were still had, were indifferent to Jesus. They were indifferent towards their Gentile neighbors. They did not believe that the Gentiles had any part in Jesus or any part of their God. And then chapter 5, we saw the the portrayal of God's covenant people. When the people that were blind and halt and withered, they were brought 
they were brought to Jesus. Chapter 6, we saw that the nation of Israel was represented as hungry, yet had no appetite for the bread of life. And then in chapter 7, we saw that the leaders of the nation of Israel, they send officers to arrest Christ. They desired to take him. They had had all they wanted to hear, and that all occurred at the Feast of Tabernacles. So now we come to chapter number 8, and how can we describe Israel? We could describe them as Jehovah's unfaithful wife. Okay, Un unfaithful wife. That's where the adulteress comes in. This woman that is given here is not just given as a representative of a single woman. She's not just being portrayed here as one instance. She is used as a picture of an entirety of a nation. Again, this is not just about this one woman. The United States of America, for example, could be considered an unfaithful wife. We could look at our nation and we can say, is our nation faithful to God? So this is not just about the sin of adultery. God uses that sin of adultery to point to the importance of how unfaithfulness to God can be described. Now, all of us this morning, and I'm going to do this with, with great care, all of us have or may not have, all right, I'm being very careful about this, a complete understanding of what that word even means. That word adultery, what does it mean? We will leave it this morning with a simple thought, it is to be unfaithful. Now, it's much deeper than that, all right? And again, we're using a term that is a term that some may not fully understand, so I'm, I'm trying to be uh, very careful this morning. But when we think about this woman, this woman is going to be brought before Jesus, who the Pharisees do not even believe is anyone but a simple man, yet they're going to bring this woman to him to, to pass or declare a sentence on her. In other words, they're going to say, Jesus, here she is. What are you going to do with her? How are you going to treat her? And as we get into this over the next couple of weeks, this is again, this is a very high introduction of this. We're going to look at the reality of that the plan of the Pharisees was to look at them, look at Jesus and say, if we bring her to him, we've got him. Because whatever he says, he's going to violate one of his claims. Now that's important because that's what the, the mindset of the Pharisees was when they brought this woman. Let me just make this very clear. The Pharisees had no desire to really be sure that she was taken care of properly. It was all an attempt to discredit Jesus, okay? They were not, they were not bringing her because they wanted, whole, they wanted justice served. They were bringing her because they wanted to deceive and trick Jesus into doing something that would discredit his claims. Now, that's vitally important to understanding this text. Because if we just look at this from a view and we just say, this is about adultery. Now, it is. Adultery, biblically speaking, is a sin. But Jesus, throughout the, this chapter and the Bible, throughout many chapters and many books, uses the term or the phrase of the sin of adultery to be a picture of an unfaithful wife, and he uses it in the, in the perspective of not just uh, individuals, but even the nation of Israel is referred to as an adulterous wife. So we've got to keep those things in mind. 
Now, before we even get there, we need to notice something again that seems insignificant, but what's going on when Jesus is, has this woman rather brought to him. Look at verses one and two. The Bible says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Seems insignificant. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. Now let's think about this for just a moment. Jesus had just come from crying out at the the last convocation of the Feast of Tabernacles. He had instructed them, if any man thirsts, let them come unto me and drink. We saw that he was received with uh, hatred. There was a division. The Pharisees were asking, why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you take him? Why is he still going free? And Nicodemus stands up and says, listen, this man deserved to be heard before you can take him. Chapter 7 ends with this phrase. And every man went unto his own house. Again, seems like what's the big deal here? Well, here you have every man dispersed. They left away from Jesus' invitation. And the Bible says they went to their house, but chapter number eight says Jesus went somewhere else. Again, sometimes chapter breaks are unfortunate because they break off the thought and you think, okay, it's like a closed chapter. Like I just said, it's like 2018 is over, 2019 now. What happened in the past doesn't matter. Everything matters in the past to get the proper context for now what's getting ready to happen. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives. The people go to their own house. There is a contrast here between what's happening. Here the invitation was given, every man come who's thirsty, and yet people responded by going their separate ways. Jesus doesn't just leave. He goes up to the Mount of Olives, and the Bible says that early in the morning, he came again into the temple. God could have in his, Jesus could have been in his justice. He could have just said, you know what? I gave him an invitation yesterday. I gave him an invitation at the Holy Convocation. They were divided. They went to their own house. Jesus comes unto them again. He goes back into the very temple and he begins to do what? He sits down and he teaches. So there are, there are really a couple contrasts here. This, this is something that is very peculiar in the book of, of John. This gospel uh, that's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is a lot of places where there's what we're going to refer to as a double thought. It's, it's not just what seems to be on the surface. Again, I'm giving you a lot of introductory background, I know, so just bear with me. But you've got, you've got, you've got to look at this from this perspective. Through John, there are two very important things that are made prominent about Christ. Number one, there is a a great desire that the, the, the glory of Christ is seen. Okay, so I want you to keep that in mind. The book of John, there's, there's a, a, almost a, a passionate desire that God's essential glory is seen. That's number one. But at the same time, there is also an emphasis on his humiliation. All right? Now, again, think about this. The subject is the harmony of mercy and justice. Mercy and justice seem as far apart as two principles can be. So does glory and humiliation. 
When I think about those two terms, I think one way up here and I think one way down here. How could Christ's essential glory be protected and be seen even in his humiliation? Again, these are all very important terms. The book of, in the book of John, the Holy Spirit presents Christ and refers to him as the eternal Son of God. But he's also referred to as the Son who's come down from heaven. He's referred to as being made flesh. We're given on the one hand the glory of God, the Son, the eternal Son of God, and on the other hand, we're given the reality of His humility and the depths of shame in which Jesus came down into. Always remember that when Jesus came to us, He condescended. He came down to us. That's humility. Again, His essential glory matters, but His humility also. There's harmony there. Harmony between His glory and harmony between His humiliation. Those two things are almost always placed side by side. Christ's glory and His humiliation. Throughout the Bible, mercy is almost always placed alongside justice. Okay, they're opposite ends. Can they both exist? Can God's glory be seen in his humiliation? That's the question. Going further, can the mercy of God be seen in justice? That's harmony. Harmony is taking a lot of things that are different and making them sound right. I don't know a lot about music, but I know when music sounds right. That's harmony. It's part of it. It's all in one. It's together. Now, I know there's a lot of different musical terms. But you can tell when something's not harmonized, right? Sometimes we're not always in harmony. We don't always sing our hymns perfectly. We have problems. Sometimes we don't know it. I know it. We're on, we get off pitch and key and everything. But you cannot have God's mercy without justice. And you can't have justice without mercy. And you cannot have God's glory without his humiliation. That's why it's called harmony. So these, these themes are running through all the book of John. And I need you to remember that they're especially running true in this story with the woman taken in adultery. Because if I look at it just for mercy's sake, I'm going to have a perspective of what should happen to her. If I look at only through justice, I'm going to say, I here's what happened, should happen to her. But if I look at how does God's mercy and justice harmonize? And that's what's really important here to think about. We know that Jesus has been said about him in chapter number four. We read he was wearied with his journey. We read about even further that we see in, 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 in this passage, Jesus went up into the Mount of Olives. There's a suggestion there of, of Christ being exalted and lifted up. The Mount of Olives is a place of, was a place of glory, is a place of exaltation. But yet the Bible talks about when Jesus says the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's this glorious Christ who yet says by his own admission, I don't have anywhere to put my head down at night. All right, this all matters. When every man went to his own house, Jesus didn't go to a house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He went to a place of elevation, but he also went to a place of where he had no place to call home. He had no place to say, this is where I am. The Bible also makes another statement when it says, he who was rich for our sakes became poor. 
How can a rich man become poor? Or how can a rich man, let me rephrase that, how can a rich man also be poor at the same time? Jesus embodies both of those things. So now let's look at verse number two. Why does this matter? And early in the morning, he came again unto the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. Now there's nothing insignificant in scripture. I hope we've understood that. Each one of these scenes, this is, this is remarkable. Every scene that we have in the Bible was written or drawn by the hand of God, the finger of God. So when I read a text, I am not reading the penmanship or the authorship of mere humanity. I am reading the actual hand of God painting the picture. If you've ever read a good book, there are some people who are very great at painting a picture where you can read a book and actually you put yourself in the scene. I've read some books that are so terrible, I have no idea where I am. Right? And it's true. Some people have a gift to write a good book, and I know where they are. The divine hand of God is painting this, and we can almost see him. We can see him, okay, he's back in the temple. Now, I don't know what the temple looks like exactly. I don't know what its colors are, but I know what happens in the temple. There are people there who need to be taught. Jesus now comes back into that temple early. And so no matter how small we think it is, we need to keep in mind the picture that's being painted in front of us. Here, the light of the world, the eternal Son of God, is humbling himself. He's brought himself into humiliation. He's taken on a robe of human flesh. And now he's standing before people who, for the most part, want nothing to do with him. And he's teaching them. Now, these phrases don't seem to matter to most, but he says he sat down. And he taught them. Again, we think about that and think with well, this, this chapter, this theme, how does, why does all this matter? Notice there's some practical applications here. You see, number one, it says it was early. You know, we're told throughout Scripture to follow his steps. We're told to follow his example. In the very first recorded sermon that Jesus ever preached, in Matthew 6, he gave these words. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's an application there that we ought to seek him early. We ought to seek him before everything else. He ought to be the first thing that we're seeking. When Jesus sits down and teaches these people, he's teaching them to seek after him. He always practiced what he preached. So here's this lesson of where even Isaiah had mentioned. Isaiah had given the instruction in, in, in the book of Isaiah about early, and I'm paraphrasing, early in the day, seeking the face and the blessing of God. Proverbs 8, 17 says, they that seek me early shall find me. Again, practical application, not necessarily the main thrust of this text, is to consider and think about how much different would our lives be if we truly seek, sought after the kingdom of God first. How different would they be? Again, we read this text with the desire of the kingdom of God being seen first. It's the only way we're going to fully be able to comprehend what Jesus is trying to say. Now let's dispel a couple of things. Notice it says, and all the people came unto him. Again, there's no word that's caused more controversy in the Bible, it seems, than the word all. You say, why does all matter? Because all... It gives us the right perspective. This doesn't mean that everybody on the planet showed up. Okay, all can be an all-encompassing word. 
we've used this illustration and said that all is not necessarily the amount of people or every person there. All has to be understood in the proper sense. For example, we read in John 3.26, the disciples of John came to Christ complaining that Christ was attracting too many to himself. And it said all come to him. Well, we know that that means not every single person came unto him. But then in John 6.45, the Lord Jesus declares, they shall all be taught of God. Now, we know that not everybody is going to be taught of God. There's an example of where the word all has to be taken into concept. Uh, uh, context here. Context here. So, all the people come. That doesn't mean every single person who's ever lived and every person that was alive then. These passages, like this, are passages that have led into false teaching of what's called universalism which basically means that ultimately, it doesn't matter what happens, what we say, everybody ultimately is going to be saved, so don't worry about it, just go on. But it's important we understand that this doesn't mean that every single person was there and even every single person that was at the Feast of the Tabernacles was there. All right, so the prime example of that was what Jesus said in John 12, 32. He said, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. It doesn't mean all without exception. It doesn't mean that every single person. It's a fact today, all right? It is a fact that not everybody is drawn to Christ, okay? Biblically, not everyone's drawn to Christ. That all in John 12, 32, it's all types of people. Remember, this Feast of Tabernacle had Jews coming from all over the place, and in the temple, there still would have been people from all walks of life. But primarily, these were Jews. This was Israel. These were the people who received the light of Christ first, and yet, he still had to teach them. There's something to be said about Jesus sitting down and teaching them. Now, customary, what was customary is that when a teacher would teach, he would sit down. The hearer would stand. Imagine we reverse that in our day and age today. I would sit down, you would stand up. It was customary for him to sit down. This is not unusual from that standpoint. However, it is important to note that throughout Scripture, we see Jesus at various times teaching while standing, while walking. But each one of those is directed in a different instance. In other words, there's times when Jesus sits down that sends one message, and there's times when he stands up that sends another message. It really is fascinating. We just look at this and we just think, well, yeah, big deal. He went into the temple, he sat down, and he taught them. All of these things have meaning. They're expressions. We see phrases in the Bible like Jesus stood, Jesus walked, Jesus sat. Each of those expressions, and all, by the way, all of those expressions are found in the book of John. So Jesus teaches sometimes by standing, by walking, by sitting. To stand and teach, okay, we'll see, I'm going to show you a couple of examples of this. To stand and teach directs attention to the dignity of the person. Or they ought to be lifted up and elevated. They are somebody of importance. In the temple, what's Jesus doing right now? He's not standing. He's sitting. Sitting was a sign of humbling yourself. The teacher that was sitting was not doing that 
to elevate himself, he was sitting down in the humility of what it is to teach, what it is to express what he's getting ready to say. Now think about everything that's happened up to this point through the first seven chapters of John. In our human perspective, we're saying, why didn't Jesus just come in there like a raging bull and say, listen, all of you people are going to listen to me. I'm the one that's supposed to be exalted. I'm the one that's supposed to be lifted up. He sits down. This is, this is the eternal son of God, folks. Who the eternal son of God at the same time, who is exalted at the right hand of the father, yet he's humbling himself, putting himself down as nothing more than just a humble teacher. Jesus standing directs attention to the importance of the person. It is important to note, all right, in any instance where the words or phrase Jesus stood and taught, not a single instance was the glory of God and the glory of his person recognized. In other words, every time when Jesus is standing, there's no reference made that anybody recognized the glory of God or that it could be seen. It's, it's, it's really quite stunning. These little illustrations, these little things that you see and you find them. As a matter of fact, in the very first chapter, way back in John chapter number one, verse 26, the Bible says this, John answered them saying, I baptize with water but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. Jesus was standing among them and they didn't see him. Okay, you may, it may seem insignificant, but it matters. In John 7:37, there is a reference made. And this is the reference that we just talked about. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus taught at the Holy Convocation, he stood and cried. When he comes now to the Mount of Olives, he is seated. His glory is not what's being seen. His humiliation is being seen. He's humbling himself. He is, and this is the point. All right? Now, up to, I will almost guarantee, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this pridefully because I never have done this myself. I have never studied it this way. I have heard this story a thousand times. I never once heard verses 1 and 2 ever expounded to have any meaning to them. It always jumps right into the woman caught in adultery. Now I actually see what's going on. You know what my vision of this story was? That Jesus was out walking on the road somewhere, and the Pharisees came running down the road and caught him, and that he's, when he draws in the dirt, they were in a random place. This is all happening in the temple while he's teaching. Suddenly the story now takes on a whole new meaning. Now this isn't some random act. The Pharisees come in where Jesus has humbled himself and he has sat down and he's teaching. And at the very moment he's doing that, they come and they bring this woman in with the intent to discredit him. Suddenly now this story means a whole lot more than what it's meant. So here we have Jesus sitting down and he's teaching them. When you see in the scripture, Jesus walked. 
It's referring to Jesus publicly revealing himself. In other words, when Jesus walked through a town, he was not hiding himself. Remember all the way back in the first verse of chapter 7 of John, it said, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Jesus, as he walked through towns, he was revealing himself. He was publicly revealing himself. And yet this brings us to where we are right now. Jesus sat. This points directly to his lowliness of the condescension where he left being seated at the right hand of the Father, came down to us. He's seated. This demonstrates his lowliness, his humility, his meekness, and his grace. Isn't it amazing to me that the same Jesus, now sitting here calmly, is the same Jesus who, who emptied the house, the people of the, who were selling the merchandise who came in with a whip, basically, and drove them all out. This is the same Jesus now who's sitting in humility and lowliness and grace. And while he's doing that, the Pharisees are going to bring this woman in. Okay, you can see their intent is not to be taught. Their intent is to discredit him. In John 4, verse number 6, it says this about... about um, about Jesus where he was seated, times he was seated. You remember the story well, when he, when he spoke with the woman at the well. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. You know, when Jesus taught the woman at the well, he was seated. And we know how that story went. She tried to say what she was there for, and what did Jesus say to her? You've had five husbands. This is not the first time Jesus has dealt with this subject of adultery. And again, it's not just about the woman at the well, and it's not just about the woman who's brought to the temple. There is a bigger picture being given here. The unfaithfulness of God's people. In John 6, verse 3, it says this, And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. I've always thought, I, I, I think most times when you see Jesus speaking with his disciples, he was seated with them. Again, lowliness, meekness. He wasn't exploiting the glory that he deserved. Okay, this is, this is so important. It's, it's, I can't even put it into words. John 12, 15 says this. Fear not. And again, may seem insignificant. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. Jesus comes into town and people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus comes in on the back of a donkey. Yet that coming was the fulfillment of, of what Zechariah 9.9 said is that their king that would come would be a humble king and he would come riding on a donkey. That's, so when Jesus came in and they were all saying, blessed be the king, everybody there should have recognized that's Jesus because he's fulfilled another prophecy. So to say that the Pharisees and all the other hearers did not see or had the ability or opportunity to see Jesus would be a lie. 
They knew that Jesus would be this. He would come here. He'd be born in Bethlehem. They knew all those things. We covered that last week. So let's just touch on this. We're not going to get very far because I, I want us to just think on what we've been seeing today because I think this is, these are important principles. But let's just look at verses 3 and 4, just read them, and I'm just going to make a couple quick comments on them, and then honestly, we're going to be done for today. And the scribes, this is all happening now. You've got the picture, right? And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him, that's in the temple, a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Next week, almost the entire message will be that question, what sayest thou? Let's just read on just another, I just want you to kind of get this picture. This they said, tempting him, that he might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. As the plans of the Pharisees had failed on the previous day, now they thought up something new. Look, we can't take him. So let's trap him. Let's make him stumble on his own words and let's make, him, let's make him do something or say something that he shouldn't do. You realize when they brought her in, they knew exactly what they were doing with her. It's like using a pawn in a sick game. They were not concerned about the sin of this woman. They weren't concerned about she broke the law. Now, they're going to use that as their shield to say, Jesus, do something. You know what the law says, right? Jesus, you know what's supposed to happen with the women that taken in adultery. This woman's supposed to be stoned. Are you going to give the command to stone her? Now, by the way, Jesus, in that day and age, did not have the authority to pronounce sentence on her. He couldn't have said, yes, yeah, stone her. They didn't even believe he was God. So why did they come to him asking him to make the determination of whether or not she should die or not? So tell me, do the Pharisees have any idea at all who this Jesus really is? Oh, I think they have a full understanding. I think this is where man's denial of who he really is. But they want to trap him and discredit him as the Messiah who they should have known. That's who he is. If you didn't think he was God, why, did you bring, why would you bring her to him to pass judgment on her? Now, Jesus flips the title or flips the, the narrative when the woman actually in the, later in the story says, no man, Lord. And then Jesus announces, I do have the ability to condemn you. But he says, 
Woman, where are those thine accusers? No man hath condemned thee. But then Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Right there, Jesus is saying, I have the, I have the authority to condemn you, but I'm not going to. But I want you to know this. I want you to go and sin no more. She's dismissed with a warning. Jesus didn't say, I'm okay with your sin. That's how do you get the harmony of mercy and justice? Because that's what these, that's what these Pharisees were after. If he's merciful, he's breaking the law. If he's just, he will no longer be the friends of publicans and sinners, right? It's pretty amazing. Jesus, they, wanted, they thought he couldn't give the right answer. That's where the story takes on this wonderful narrative. What he wrote in the ground. And by the way, I don't think it's a mystery. We'll actually see scripturally, you'll be able to, we'll be able to pull out what, he's, what he wrote. People have said for years, nobody knows what he wrote. He didn't use words. He literally wrote in the ground and it says as if he didn't hear them. Well, he did hear them. But isn't it interesting that the Bible, all of this happens. They say, what sayest thou? Jesus doesn't use a single word. He writes in the ground. And one by one, every one of those accusers walks out of the temple and leaves Jesus standing alone with the woman. That's pretty remarkable to me. Because what he wrote was authoritative that they left. Convicted, the Bible says, in their own conscience. What he wrote actually brought them to the place where they left. The only thing he says, and what's so important, is in verse 7, he that is without sin... Let him first cast a stone. That's all he says. If you are without sin, you throw the first stone of condemnation. To be stoned is to be condemned. Jesus, that's all he says. And then what he writes causes them to go one by one. These enemies of Christ thought they had something new. If we can get him in this, we couldn't get him by power. We couldn't get him by strength. So we'll try to catch him, catch him with subtlety. Isn't it amazing that when we think about the devil, we think about how he works, the devil works in subtlety. He works in not outward manifestations of himself. When the devil's at work in your life or his demons or his angels, whatever you want to refer to them as, it isn't an outright, it's subtle. Here these Pharisees come in acting holier than thou, saying, Jesus, you know what the law says. You know it. What are you going to do about it? You see, the hatred of the Lord's enemies is so evident here. They bring this adulterous woman to Christ not because they were shocked or appalled at her conduct, or that they were grieved about God's law being broken. Their object and their purpose was single-mindedness, and it was simply this. They wanted to use this woman to exploit her sin in order to further carry out their designs to get him. That was the whole point. Now, folks, I want you to understand how 
how cold this would be. Okay, now, this would be, this would be like, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to draw any comparisons. I'm trying to just give you crude illustrations here. This would be like somebody, one of you, or even myself, bringing someone in the front door, bringing her to the front, or he, whatever the sin is, standing them in front of you and announcing to them what you just caught them doing. Now, I've been in churches where this happens. It's appalling. I I have seen it. I've seen pastors stand up from a high, elevated pulpit and call people's names out and call their sin out publicly. I've seen it happen. And what you think is going to happen, you're going to think that there will be a lot of people, and again, it's it's not that they didn't sin. But I've watched the mob mentality where suddenly everybody else who's not standing here suddenly thinks, I can't believe that person did what they did. While they sit there with their own sin that you sure don't want to be drugged to the front and people publicly announce what you just did today or this week. But yet, they're not throwing actual stones, but they're throwing condemning sneers, they're throwing condemning looks, and they're folding their arms and saying, Oh, I can't believe that person did that. The reality is there's not a single one of us, including myself or anybody else who ever stood behind this desk, who's going to say, I would want that. This woman was a sick pawn. Now, again, we're not negating her sin. She was caught. It was an actual sin. The reality is they were trying to use the guilt of her Now, don't miss this. They were trying to use the guilt of her to carry out their intentions. In other words, if I can point out the sin of someone else, I can carry out what I need to carry out. Their motive should not be forgotten. The motive here, they want to discredit the Lord before the people. He's got an audience what he says, these Pharisees, what is he, what's Jesus going to do with this woman who's caught in a sin? Folks, ask yourself the question today. Every one of us, every one of us was caught in sin. What's he going to do with you? Not what's he going to do or what, what, what's not about what he's going to do. What should he have done? What he should have done is just flat out, you broke the law, condemned. That's what he should have done. That's what we think is justice. So the mob mentality with that woman or that man who's brought to the front, who's throwing all the stones with the evil sneers and evil looks, obviously forgets that you are in the exact same place as that woman. Now we can categorize it. We can say, now her sin's really bad. All I did was lied. Listen, there's not categories here. It's still sin, and every, even the least sin is still should have condemned us. We still, should have been, we still should have died in that sin. So the lessons we're going to learn from this, we've got to keep in mind, this is not about pulling out her sin and trying to make ourselves feel better. This is about pulling out the motive of those who brought her and how Jesus responded to them. He didn't, he's teaching. 
He didn't, they didn't come privately. Again, it would be just like me standing up here teaching and one of you or some one of our other members comes in and says, listen, I got something to say. I caught this woman during church today. I caught her. What are you going to do about this? That's what happened. There's a crowd of people Jesus is teaching and yet they bring her in. They challenged him to solve what they thought was an unsolvable quandary. The quandary was this. This man cannot possibly harmonize the law and grace. He can't possibly harmonize mercy and justice. Yet in Christ, folks, that's exactly what we have. Every last one of us, if it was not for the harmony of mercy and justice, we would all be condemned in our sin and be without hope today. So praise God there is harmony. That somehow this eternal Son of God could condescend and come down to where we are to meet our need. What was our need? We needed a Savior. If He doesn't condescend, we only get what we deserve, which is justice. Justice says there's a sin. This woman, there's a sin. She didn't get what she deserved. She got mercy, but she also got a warning. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't say, hey, you sinned. Go back to your adulterous affair. No, he said, don't do it again. So there, is a great, there are great principles here. So that's introduction. Next week, we'll get more and more into this. We'll look at some of these phrases. We'll actually get into uh, what the biblically the Bible says that he wrote on the ground and how we find that. And then we'll get into more of these principles about the harmony of mercy and justice. Let's stand all around if you would. We'll conclude with um, a hymn number 186. I know we've